0: Today marks the last Sunday in our Isaiah series, so we've been doing that for all six months now. And uh, it's been good, it's been rich, and we're concluding that. I think Kevin's going to make a little announcement about what's next later. But we we entitled the series as sort of a subtitle, Seeing Christ in Isaiah. And hopefully we've done that. Um, That's been our mission, that's been our goal. I can assure you that as we wrap up and begin looking at the next series, we, we don't feel like we've exhausted this book. It's powerful, it's beautiful, it's profound. Um, I feel like we've, we've scratched the surface and in a couple areas we've dug a little deeper, but there's so much there. Um, it's, a, it's almost as if we did a survey. But we invite you to keep digging because Isaiah is a, is a treasure and uh, it's worth digging into and as we look into it we see we see things in isaiah we see a warning we see warnings against idolatry and against pride um we see the marvel of the detail of god's promises and prophecy for what the what the messiah would be and how that would come about and we just see beauty in the poetry isaiah's words are beautiful and it's it's remarkable some of the text of scripture is just very straightforward prose, but Isaiah is poetry and it's rich. Um, But most of all, we have this promise, this this redemption promise that comes through in Isaiah that ultimately God's going to reconcile himself to his people. And he has a mission to do that. Um, today's, Today's title of the message is the gospel according to Isaiah. We have the four gospels. That that were written by the, the disciples who walked with Jesus or the or the close eyewitnesses thereafter. But Isaiah speaks to the to the redemption, to the promise of Messiah, to the gospel from the beginning to the end of his book. And and I want to kind of walk through it. I want to use a lot of passages from Isaiah today. I'll be bouncing around a bit. I want to lead off with a passage that we honestly didn't probably give its due. Chapter two. Uh, we we had to make decisions about how we were going to um, emphasize things, and and we we didn't give Chapter Two a lot of emphasis. So I want to make sure that we read that today. Uh, but it's, it talks about Zion, the city and the mountain of God, as the focal point for all people, where true peace and true justice are are brought and maintained by God Himself. Before we before we start, let's let's just open with a, a brief word of prayer, Father. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your servant Isaiah for the for the words that You gave him for us. Father, we know that You, you have provided this Word, these Scriptures for us so that we can learn about You. We can learn who You are. Learn, learn Your plans for us and for this world. Father, give us hearts to hear. Give us minds to, to be transformed by Your Word. Father, be with us today and bless this reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm in chapter 2. I'm just going to read a few, a few of these verses uh, through chapter 4 to start off with, but I'll got a whole bunch more later. Um, and I probably won't promise to say hear the word of the Lord before every single passage that I mention. So just work with me. Hopefully it'll be clear enough when I'm, when I'm quoting Scripture. Hear the word of the Lord. The vision that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about His ways so that we may walk in His paths. For instruction will go out of Zion. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into praying knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation and they will never again train for war. This is the word of the Lord. That's peace, isn't it? That sounds like peace. Never again train for war. And the implements of war will be transformed into implements of productivity and life. Right? That's, that is the message. In chapter 2, we jump right in. in. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, it's dominated by an indictment, by a pronouncement of judgment. But God still sprinkles through here and there these words of hope. This chapter 2 is a strong word of hope for us. But you know what? Peace can't happen without redemption and reconciliation because there's a problem between God and man. And this peace that he talks about can only come about through, through redemption. So my outline today to talk about this Gospel according to Isaiah is redemption. Redemption from the only holy God. Redemption for the sinner. Redemption through Jesus, the faithful servant. And redemption to new life. Redemption from the only God for the sinner through Jesus to a new life. The Gospel is about redemption. Isaiah is about redemption. Let's jump in. So redemption from the only holy God and I mean from in a couple of different ways here. Um, It all starts with God. Let's, Let's just hear from Isaiah himself and Kevin highlighted this passage last week. It's one of the most famous passages in Isaiah if you, can, if you can even try to rank them. But in chapter 6, verse 1, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of His robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above, and they each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. What's going on here? Redemption comes from the only holy God. And who is this holy God? He's the one that sits in heaven, who rules in authority, power, and glory. He has angels who do nothing but 24-7 pronounce how holy He is. That's what they do. That is their job in life. When His voice makes thunder and shakes, that this is a God of power and ultimate holiness. Whole sermons have been written, actually, on this phrase, holy, 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 because this, this 3 word pattern in, in Hebrew communicates something to us. It's a, it's a superlative. It's, it's kind of like if we were to say holy, holier, and holiest, but it's way more poetic and profound than that. But it's saying there is nothing holier, there is nothing above, there's nothing greater, there's nothing more. This is the ultimate. Holy, holy, holy. Holy with that repetitive emphasis, nothing can surpass Him. He's ultimately pure. He's ultimately righteous, and he's set apart from creation. Isaiah 40 tells us that he's the creator and authority over all. And I love the tone here. Isaiah can get. Uh, Wesley was saying this song. That song we sang has a little bit of sass to it. Sometimes Isaiah has a little bit of a little bit of sass. There's a little bit of. A, ta- a tang in there. He says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundations of the earth? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal? asks the Holy One. Look up and see. Who created these? He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name because of His great power and strength. Not one of them is missing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to His understanding. So Isaiah is describing this creator God, ultimate power, he has authority and dominion over the whole earth. He can, he can intervene. He can do what He wants to do. And this is the God that we have a conflict with. Right? So when we say we need rescue from the judgment of this God, we need rescue from this God. He will destroy the things that are displeasing to Him. We need rescue because we have, we have sinned. Um, so when I say judgment from or rescue from this God, we need rescue from God. So we see that God is almighty. But why do, we need re- why do we need rescue? Well, the problem is he's angry, but he's rightfully angry. And in chapter one of Isaiah, Isaiah lays it out. This is God's indictment. His accusation of the people of Israel. But honestly, these words are directed to Israel, but they apply to all of us. And what does he say? Listen, heavens. Pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's feeding trough. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people, weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. They've abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel, and they've turned their backs on Him. So we have an almighty, perfect God. And we have rebelled, abandoned, despised, turned our backs on God. And He even calls us His children, making it that much worse. It's not as if we're strangers. And we talked about this in this morning Sunday School. that has been so interesting, the parallels. And I really appreciated what AJ said. We've declared ourselves enemies of God yet somehow He hasn't declared Himself an enemy of us. It's remarkable. He calls us children. And do you remember what David called Saul? The first thing he said to Saul, my father. He's appealing to this familial relationship. And God is appealing to a familial relationship too. He's saying, my children have rebelled against me. And it's bad. It's bad. But because of the character of God, the other thing that we can say is we need rescue from God, the holy God, the judge God. We need rescue from Him. But where will the rescue come from? Ha! The redemption comes from God. He's the one that we need deliverance from, and He's the one who brings the deliverance. This is the amazing thing. He's frustrated, He's angry, He's betrayed. But He's the one that's going to bring the deliverance For the rebels, the criminals, that's God. The Father who loves, who waits, who rescues. He sends judgment and pain and correction, but then rescue. I'm going to read again from chapter 40. Chapter 40 is such a pivotal chapter in Isaiah. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that the time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord comes with strength, and His power establishes His rule. His wages are with him, and his reward accompanies him. This this passage here is a passage of comfort and reassurance. We have so many chapters of "Look out! God's coming, and with him brings judgment." Now, God's coming, and with him brings comfort and reassurance. He's coming to save. So who? So we say we need redemption from God. And who needs a redemption? Redemption is for the sinner. First redemption for Israel. Right? In the the pages of the Bible, we always see a distinction between Israel and the Gentile Gentile peoples. There's always that distinction. Even in the New Testament, we see it. And so we see here the focus in Isaiah 1st on deliverance and redemption for Israel. And he's pronouncing hope and comfort in this very passage that we just read. But, but that's not all. Because now he's going to extend it. It was always his plan from Abraham forward, well, from Adam forward, that this redemption would be for all peoples. So he's bringing redemption to the Gentiles. And we'll get to the servant in a moment, but this is a message that he says to his servant, right? Right? In chapter 49, He says to the servant, It is not enough for you to be My servant raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be My salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, this is good, good news for us who aren't part of Israel because He promised Israel salvation. But Isaiah is saying He's going to fulfill the rest of His promise. He is going to bring redemption for all peoples. Through Israel. To all peoples. Right? And it's four sinners. Israel and the Gentiles. He actually specifically calls out Egypt. And I, I love this passage. Because Egypt. If you think about Egypt's role in scripture. And Egypt's role with, with Israel. It's almost. They're, they're the nemesis of Israel. Always, always that. Uh, that troublesome neighbor who's an enemy, who's their former keeper. They, they kept them as slaves. And they're always a threat, a military threat. But what does the Lord say in chapter 19? The Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and Egypt will know the Lord on that day. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. Then they will turn to the Lord, and he will be receptive to their prayers and heal them. The Lord of armies will bless them, saying, Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance, are blessed. Such powerful words. To put Egypt and Assyria in the same sentence with Israel, the chosen country, that is so. That's such a powerful promise for us to know God's desire is for all people to be redeemed. That is, that is how He thinks. That's how He operates. He wants redemption, and not just for Israel. So we've talked about the big picture Israel and the Gentiles. But at a certain level, we have to think about us as individuals. Um, All of us are sinners. Redemption is for sinners. That means it's for every person that needs this redemption. All of us are sinners and need it. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And you know who everyone is. It's everyone. And everyone sins. John said, if we say we have no sin we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Who needs this redemption? All of us. Who's a sinner? All of us. If we say we haven't sinned, we make Him a liar. We can't do that. So what does this prophet, poet Isaiah say? After Jesus has clearly said this, and John is given his direct prose. I love this. Isaiah says, "All we like sheep have gone astray, and turned each one to his own way." Isaiah is saying the same thing, but he's saying it in poetry, right? So, what to do with these foolish sheep? Well, wow. also from Isaiah chapter forty. Ultimately, this great and holy God, this judge, this creator of the universe, is also like a shepherd. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. What is the character of this God? For sheep that have gone astray, to pull them back in and carry them in his arms protect them, and feed them, and care for them. That's, that's the God that we're talking about. That's the God who brings redemption for sinners, for sheep. So we need redemption from God. We need redemption for sinners. But how does this redemption come? Redemption comes through Jesus, the faithful servant. Now the name of Jesus doesn't show up in the book of Isaiah, but everything else about about Jesus does show up in the book of Isaiah. So how, how does this redemption happen? Well, it turns out there's a price to be paid for this rebellion against the just God. We see that God's like a shepherd. He's gentle and He's kind. Does that mean that He just kind of overlooks the sin? Because I kind of painted that picture a minute ago, didn't I? Sheep going astray and doing their foolish things and Jesus gathering them up in His arms. And there's truth there, but it's not the whole truth. Because he doesn't simply overlook our wickedness. There was a price that had to be paid. And we talk about, does he, does he pass over our sin? Ha! What an interesting thing to say because, in a sense, yes, that's what Passover is about, right? But there's still a price. Who paid the price? God did, through Jesus, his son, whom Isaiah calls his servant. In chapter 53, which is maybe the most critical gospel passage in Isaiah, we see this idea of the theological term of substitutionary atonement. Now that's a mouthful, but what are we saying? That one person can pay the price for another person's crime. Substitutionary atonement. I can substitute for someone else and pay their price. But the only thing is... The only person who can do that is Jesus because He doesn't have any price of His own to pay. And He came specifically to do that. So we see redemption comes from God through Jesus. and what does Isaiah say about it? Again, theology and poetry. From Isaiah 53. Yet He Himself bore our sicknesses and He carried our pains. But we in turn... Regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. That's the rest of the story. Our turnings like sheep weren't innocent. They needed punishment. But Jesus took the punishment on our behalf so that we could be lifted up in the arms of the shepherd. This is gospel. This is the gospel of Isaiah. And you know what else? Because he, he tells us these things and he asks us to believe. And He asks us to accept these things in faith. But you know what? Our God is so gracious, He doesn't leave it only to that. Even though that would be enough. No, He puts so many details in Isaiah, He gives us prophecies so that we can be confident. Right? And so we see, we, we can identify clearly, the servant talked about in Isaiah is the Son of God, Jesus. And how do we know? Isaiah tells us, that this, that this Savior, this Redeemer, is going to be born of a virgin. How many people in history can we think of that that applies to? There's one. There's one. So we've narrowed it down quite a bit already. Um, but what else? There's going to be a lot more detail. He's going to be falsely accused, beaten, and pierced. His own accusers, the own, his own judge, Pontius Pilate, said, I can't find any fault with this man. I don't even know why you, why you brought him to me. There's nothing here. And you know what? He was right. Pilate was right. He had seen guilty people before. He knew the difference between a guilty person and an innocent man, And he couldn't figure out why Jesus was there. But what, is it, what else does it say? That he would be beaten and pierced. Was Jesus beaten and pierced? Yes. Yes, he was. It also says that like a sheep to a slaughter, he wouldn't even defend himself. wouldn't even open his mouth. And when Pilate asked him, what is your defense Jesus? did Jesus defend himself? Nope he did not. when he was before Herod, he didn't even talk to Herod. It tells us that he would be crushed and then he would die and that happened. more than that it tells him it tells us that it was the Lord's will to do it which is really hard for us to wrap our mind about how could the Lord how could God the Father, actually have a will to let the son die that's hard for us to understand but that's the love that he has for us and yet we see it in scripture because Jesus asked him ask the father in the garden Lord not your will, not my will but yours be done it was the father's will Jesus go forward and finish the job and Jesus did So he would be crushed and he would die. All these things are recorded in the Gospels. And then after death, he would be buried among the rich. What an interesting detail. Because Jesus was not a rich man in money and had no right to be buried in a rich man's tomb. But he was. He was only borrowing it for three days, like the song said. But he was buried among the rich. Right? And then Isaiah says a really interesting thing in chapter 15 that somehow He would be vindicated and live to see His legacy after He faces death and dies and is wiped out and cut off from the living, that somehow He's going to enjoy the fruits of what He has done. How in the world can this happen? A resurrection is the answer. And that's what we see in the Gospels. So, if we take the set of people who are virgin birth children of one, And then we apply all these other things and many more that I never mentioned. We see that God has given us a gift of all these details to help us see and get confidence that God planned this from the very beginning. That we can look at this and accept it as as kept promises so that we can believe Him. In our own human weakness, we can still believe these things. And He didn't have to do that. But He did. Redemption comes from God through His Son Jesus and according to prophecy. So we know from God, four sinners, through Jesus, and, and what does it go to? Redemption to a new life. Our redemption is not merely the rescue from judgment. It's not just the passive, "who I got out of that. It's a redemption to a new life. Paul says in Ephesians, where His workmanship created for... Good works in Christ. We know that when we're redeemed, we're redeemed for a purpose to be ministers of God's truth, mercy, and grace in this world. That's our purpose. We're we're to extend the truth of God, the mercy of God, and the grace of God in this world. You know, um, last week there was this, I hope you guys didn't see it honestly, but it got national airplay. There was a, a preacher out in Knoxville that posted a sermon, and he was literally, it was a Baptist church, unfortunately, the guy was literally preaching to his congregation that there's a certain group of of sinners that they should hate. In fact, if they're not hating those people, and he was was very careful not to get mixed up about this. He wasn't saying, love the sinner, hate the sin. He was saying, hate these people. You must hate these people if you want to be godly, if you want to please God. Of course, that blew up um, in the media unfortunately he's wrong (laughs) god god has enough judgment on his own he doesn't need us to bring judgment just like now we can bring truth and we must bring truth we are to be salt and light but we're not judges and and so we have to be really wise about that today in in our sunday school lesson we saw david david was anointed right david had this man that was pursuing him to death to murder David for no good reason. And David chose, I'm not going to be Saul's judge. I'm going to let God be Saul's judge. And that's what we're called to do. We are to bring mercy, the mercy of God. We're to spread that mercy, that love, that peace, and the truth. That is our job. God can handle the judgment. Okay? And the condemnation. God's got that. In fact, we are to pray and root for him to have mercy on the ones that are guilty now. Because why? Because what did we just talk about? This the sinners. We're sinners too. How could we root for the, the destruction of sinners when we're sinners too? We want mercy. We should pray for the mercy of, of other people. So, as we as we have, we're redeemed to a new life where we. Where we are spreading these things, truth, mercy, and grace. It's interesting, but it, it doesn't end with these, these thoughts and these um, these happy thoughts. Chapter 58 tells us that there's a behavior, right? If we're gonna if we're gonna truly worship God and honor Him, if God's gonna receive our worship, chapter 58. Is not this the fast that I choose? You shall cry, and He will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the mint day. These are the things we must do while we live as His people in a fallen world. We don't do these things to earn His favor. He's given us His favor. We don't have to earn it. But because He's given us His favor, we can respond in faithfulness. We can respond in gratitude. We can respond in in mutual love that, wow, God, you had mercy on me as a sinner. How can I do anything but have mercy on these other sinners who need help? So He saves us and He redeems us to a new life, a new way of thinking, and a new way of acting. And in the ultimate end, this redemption to a new life, He promises to make all things new. So those things that I talked about are things we have to do now while we're in this fallen world, but it's not always going to be fallen because He's promised redemption of the entire creation, a reconciliation of Himself to man, to the rest of creation. In chapter 65, He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I created. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Does this sound like the closing chapter of Revelation? Yeah, a whole lot like it. It's not an accident, because that's the promise given through Isaiah. And the vision again given to John. For those who seek refuge and shelter from God, He's promising a new creation that we can live in in harmony and without pain. I'll just conclude here and then we can have the musicians come up for a response time. But Isaiah has taught us about redemption. Redemption from God for sinners through the Son Jesus into a new life, both now and in eternity with Him. And how do we find this redemption? Because I've said He wants it for everyone. But not everyone will get it. How? How can we access this redemption? By believing His message. God tells us He wants to be believed. Isaiah 53 directly asks the question, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I'm telling you that He's revealed Himself to us through this book. He's told us what His message is, what His power is. The only question is, do you believe it? Do you believe Him? He wants to be believed. John 3.16, the verse that we all know, tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the message of Isaiah. And this, this is the message of the gospel.